We've been sitting for three full days now, and often on the third day of a retreat, it seems to fit quite well to talk about suffering. (laughs) I know you don't know much about this subject, that's why I thought I should mention it. First noble truth of the Buddha, the truth of suffering, sometimes expressed, I don't think quite accurately, as life is suffering. This phrase gives Buddhism kind of a bad name sometimes, doesn't sound too uplifting. I prefer to say, actually, not that life is suffering, but that there is suffering in life. Not that life is devoid of happiness and joy and contentment and peace, but that there is unavoidable suffering. That by having a body and having a mind, we are subject to suffering. The body, you've been sitting with this body now for three days, subject to aches and pains, hunger, not to mention illness, disease, injury, aging, and then the final insult, death. None of this seemingly under our control. The mind creates its own kind of suffering, delivering to us on a regular basis all kinds of unpleasant mind states. We never know when they are going to arise, but they do. This mind which is not cooperative, we find this out rather early on in our meditation practice. We may have a PhD in psychology or philosophy. We may be a medical doctor, very well trained, and somebody says, sit down and pay attention to your breath. That sounds like a piece of cake. But does our mind cooperate? Can we actually do it? Well, maybe if we're lucky, we may stay with a few breaths, and then we're off. The mind doesn't seem subject to our will. This mind is very unreliable. Certainly as we age, we notice this more and more. There's the story of the crazy wisdom uh, figure in in the Sufi tradition of Nasruddin, who perhaps he was getting a little old. He went to see a psychiatrist, and he told the psychiatrist, my problem is I can't remember anything. The psychiatrist said, oh, well, how long has this been going on? At which point Nasruddin said, how long has what been going on? (laughs) And it is like that, moment to moment, we can't remember. What was I just thinking? When I was in it, I was so involved, now it's gone. This mind of ours is not subject to our will. Then there is the suffering, which we all experience, of wanting. Wanting what? Wanting what we don't have. 
We don't ever want what we already have, do we? We always want what we don't have. There is the suffering of not wanting what we do have, wanting to get rid of it, perhaps. And then there's the very odd suffering of finally getting what we want. (laughs) And we're still not satisfied. There's a lovely little poem by the Zen poet Basho. Although I am in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. Even when we get what we want, this longing sometimes does not leave us. Or we get what we want, and then we get used to it. It's not so great anymore. We get habituated. We look for a bigger thrill, a better relationship, a better job, a better place to live. And then, of course, there is the suffering of the fact that everything is always changing. Nothing lasts. Absolutely nothing which arises in our world lasts. Everything arises has the nature to change. Everything which arises eventually ceases. A lot of us are very good at planning. We like to plan. We take a great joy in planning. But despite our best plans, sometimes the future does not turn out the way we wish, oftentimes. We might take the advice of Gyaltse, Gyaltse Rinpoche. This is for all you planners out there. Planning for the future is like going fishing in a dry gulch. Things rarely work out as you want. So give up all your schemes and ambitions. If you have got to think about something, make it the uncertainty of the hour of your death. Now, we know we're all going to die. At least I think we know. Maybe some of us aren't quite convinced yet. But we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how we're going to die. A very vivid story that illustrates this was told by Stephen Levine. He told it about a man who came to him in a lot of grief. He told the story of he and his wife, who on their 10th anniversary had decided to go on a hiking trip to New Zealand. They loved to hike, rock climb. So they went, and they were having a wonderful time. And one day, they hiked up a very, very steep cliff by the side of a waterfall, very steep waterfall. And they hiked and they hiked and they hiked. It was a glorious, beautiful day. They finally got to the top. And they were standing on a very kind of narrow ledge looking down over this beautiful waterfall. And the man turned around and his wife was gone. 
He tells, he tells Stephen, I turned around and she was gone. So quickly, so unexpected did death befall her. There is this unavoidable suffering in life which we all have to come to terms with. In the silence and the stillness of a meditation retreat, our suffering manifests in many different ways, as unpleasant sensations in the body, unpleasant thoughts, emotions, moods in the mind, craving, anger, fear, grief, doubt, restlessness, boredom, lethargy, lust, obsessive thinking, jealousy, judgment, you name it, anything can arise. Also, very deep memories from the past often come to the surface when we're on retreat. Unfinished business from the past comes to the surface. Sometimes people notice on retreat that they have amazing, vivid dreams, sometimes even nightmares. In the silence and stillness of a meditation retreat, the healing of old wounds is possible. Because when these things come forth from deep within us and we shine the light of our attention onto the darkness of our fear, our grief, our loneliness, our rage, a very deep healing can occur. This very simple practice of bringing our wholehearted, non-judging attentiveness This is what actually heals. This is what purifies our consciousness. Every moment of clear seeing brings light into the darkness of our suffering, our ignorance. And it is the inherent luminosity of awareness itself which burns through our suffering and purifies our consciousness until finally one day we realize the very nature of mind itself to be luminous and empty. From a Tibetan teacher, I I love this, it's really vivid. Like a lamp, which in one instant can illuminate a house which has lain dark for a thousand years, A moment's realization of the luminosity of one's mind purifies the accumulated evil deeds and obscurations of countless eons. Bringing this light into our consciousness, this is the direction of our practice. I want to illustrate this by reading you a story of one yogi who describes this process, I think, in very concrete and very vivid terms. This was written by a man who did this practice. He was a Vietnam veteran. And he wrote, he said, he had been a field medic with the Marine Corps in Vietnam. He says, 
It had been eight years since my return from Vietnam when I attended my first Vipassana retreat. At least twice a week for all those eight years, I had sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming that I was back there, facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking suddenly alert, sweating, and scared. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep. They filled my mind's eye during the day, at sittings, during walking meditation, at meals. Horrific wartime flashbacks were superimposed over a quiet redwood grove at the retreat center. Sleeping students in the dormitory became body parts strewn about a makeshift morgue on the DMZ. What I gradually came to see was that as I relived these memories as a 30-year-old spiritual seeker, I was also enduring for the first time the full emotional impact of experiences which as a 20-year-old medic I was simply unprepared to withstand. I began to realize that the mind was gradually yielding up memories so terrifying, so life-denying, and so spiritually eroding that I had ceased to be consciously aware that I was still carrying them around. I was, in short, beginning to undergo a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared and had therefore most strongly suppressed. What also arose at the retreat for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present self. Compassion for the idealistic young would-be physician forced to witness the most unspeakable obscenities and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he could not acknowledge he carried. Since that first retreat, the compassion has stayed with me. While the memories, some have also stayed with me, the nightmares have not. The last of the sweating screamers happened in silence, fully awake, high atop a Zafu, somewhere in Northern California, over a decade ago. This is the possibility of this practice a very deep, deep healing of old wounds, of all that lies within us which is not complete, which is not healed. One of my teachers expressed the truth of suffering in this way. He said, recognize suffering Recognize it. Don't avoid it. Don't resist it. Don't deny it. It's often we, it's often when we don't fully recognize it that we are actually perpetuating it. We are living in denial. Now we may even hear these words, but we fully don't recognize the suffering in our lives or see clearly how it is working in our experience and how we, in our ignorance, are perpetuating it. 
by avoiding it, by resisting it, by not recognizing it, not opening to it. We become a little asleep around a lot of the suffering in our lives. You know, it's kind of like this planet we live on. I like to use this analogy that the planet Earth is basically a very quiet place. And most of the noise we hear on planet Earth is made by who? By us, by the human beings, us humans. You know, you get away up into the mountains or out into the wilderness, and one of the first things that may strike us is the quiet. Not much to hear, you know, wind, birds, thunder perhaps, or running water, or rainstorms, lightning, or maybe a wild animal. But basically, it's pretty quiet. Now, if we've grown up in a city, the quiet of the country can seem quite disturbing. Remember years ago when I lived in New York City, I had a boyfriend who had grown up in Manhattan, and whenever we went out to the country, he could never sleep. He said it was the crickets. But I think it was the quiet. He wasn't used to it. But put him in the middle of Manhattan with fire trucks, ambulances, trains, buses, he could sleep. Now our minds are a little bit like this. We are filled with the noise of our fear, our obsession, our worry, our planning, our memory, our desire. We carry on all day long until we think it's all quite natural to be like that, and we get a little uneasy when things are quiet or calm or peaceful or nothing much seems to be happening or we're just happy or content for no reason at all. All these mind states, these ways of suffering, are all the ways we fill our minds and our lives in perpetual carrying on that begins to seem like a city does to a city dweller, perfectly natural. We forget that there are actually other possibilities. I remember very vividly this time in my practice, and I know some of you have heard this, but I'll tell it again. When I had had it, when I started practice, oh, I never got sleepy. I had so much to pay attention to. I had a lot of intensity and drama and highs and lows, and it was great. I was, it was really interesting. But then there came, after some months, a time in my practice when all of that settled down. And it seemed to me that there was nothing happening. And I thought something was wrong, because I had expected that just to continue, I guess, forever. So I thought there was something really wrong. So I went to Joseph, my teacher at the time, and I, I described the situation to him and um, my dilemma around it. And he finally smiled at me and said, Anna, he said, I think what you're experiencing is calm. <laughs> and I was shocked because I had never thought of myself as a calm person. I hadn't imagined that that would be a part of my repertoire. It was a totally new experience to inhabit calm, to see that this was a lived possibility, not just a nice idea in a book. 
So there are these possibilities that meditation presents to us. Possibilities for contentment, for peace, for joy, for calmness, for clarity. And we begin to taste them and actually live them on retreat. They become lived realities. That's why it's so important that we take this time so we can really allow these qualities to be felt, to be known, not just words. We actually learn there are these other options than grimly enduring or avoiding through distraction. They arise quite naturally when we're willing to be completely present. These qualities of mind and heart are not dependent on the content of our experience, but rather on our willingness to be present. Now, we may see that we are suffering. Oftentimes, we're all too aware that we are suffering. And we don't like it. We want it to go away. Why doesn't it? Why doesn't it go away? Because often we don't see our part in keeping it around. We don't see how we are actually perpetuating it. I'll give you an example. I have a small energetic dog named Max, who is quite a character, but nevertheless, I could tell you lots of stories about Max, but that's not what I'm here to do. Um, When he was rather young, still somewhat of a puppy, I took him downtown to do, uh, downtown one day on a, on a leash. I was doing some errands and I had him with me and it was kind of a hot summer day and I thought I would stop at a cafe to get some iced tea. So I tied Max up to a plastic chair that was on the sidewalk outside the cafe and went in the cafe to get my iced tea and I was in there like a few seconds it seems. Suddenly I hear this huge commotion outside and I look out to see Max running up the street, dragging this plastic chair behind him and turning around and barking at the chair at the same time. (laughs) Now this is what we do. We kind of drag our suffering around with us, and we're barking at it at the same time. This is often how we go through life, not seeing our part in keeping it around. You know the recipe for perpetuating suffering? What's the recipe? If we want to perpetuate suffering, I'm about to tell you how to do it. It's called resist, avoid, distract, deny, look for the pleasant. Do anything but face it directly. That's the recipe for keeping suffering around. There was a yogi on retreat once that I was working with who Whenever I asked her about the walking meditation, she didn't really seem to have much to say and found out that she wasn't actually doing the walking meditation. (laughs) 
she finally described what was happening to her, which was that she would get up from the sitting and sort of amble towards her shoes in the, in the shoe room and put on her shoes, sort of mildly intending to go do the walking. But then she'd find, you know, so, well, I better get a drink of water. And then, oh, well, there's the bulletin board. Maybe I should just check it in case there's some urgent message. And, and you know, maybe I should go to the bathroom and took a little time and then maybe check the bulletin board again just in case. And then, well, maybe it's time for a cup of tea and then maybe I should go to my room. And this went on and on and on. And until finally, you know, the list got longer and longer and longer until it was like, who has time for walking? I've got all these other things to do. So finally, in working with her, we saw what was happening, which was very, very subtle, very, very subtle, which was that after the sitting, there would be one moment of some kind of anticipatory discomfort one thought of anticipatory discomfort about doing the walking meditation. And her whole then distractedness was fueled by that one moment of anxiety that perhaps there might be some discomfort. So there was this slight tendency to avoid. And when she could finally realize and really be precise and pinpoint that it was just this one moment, this one thought, when she could actually allow herself to feel that anxiety without being driven by it, without being hypnotized by it, it was just a thought. Then she could allow herself to go and do the walking, no problem. I think this is an interesting story because it illustrates how subtle, how subtly we can get distracted, how easily we can, if we're not paying attention, something can just take us away from the moment, take us away from our intention. And it's really a gift of this practice, it being so simple that it creates a form, a mirror, for us to see how complex we make even the most simple. So the recipe for suffering, something appearing in the mind or the body which is unpleasant, Something arises which is unpleasant, be it a pain in the body or a thought in the mind, and we don't see it clearly. We resist it, we distract ourselves, we avoid it, we deny it. We look for something pleasant. One of my very early retreats, many, many years ago, was a retreat in the desert with the teacher Ruth Dennison. Perhaps some of you know her. She has a small retreat center in the desert outside of Los Angeles in Southern California. And being somewhat naive about both the desert and meditation, I thought it would be really wonderful to go there. saw myself romantically sitting peacefully in the desert meditating. So I went there and had quite a 
rude awakening because in the desert there's often a very persistent wind blowing and there was at that time of year and it would be a hot dry wind in the middle of the day and a cold dry wind in the later part of the day but it was always a wind a ceaselessly blowing wind so I thought to myself oh well it's lucky we have be able to sit inside, you know, out of the wind, and we'll be cozy inside. Well, no sooner had we started in our practice, but Ruth, who has an incredible talent for finding people's Achilles heels and bringing their attention to that, had us all standing out in the wind, doing meditation practice, standing in the wind. Now, this was not my idea of how you did meditation. This was not my idea of what I had come there to do. This was not anything that I wanted to do. And, of course, other people felt quite similarly. None of us wanted to be out standing in the wind. But nevertheless, there we were, hour after hour. And she had us explore very minutely our aversion to this experience, noticing the unpleasant sensations in the body, noticing our emotional reactions to the wind, to her. We could not get away. It was an amazing lesson. I would never have chosen to do this, but there I was. And I must say that after a while, we all kind of just surrendered to the wind and it became not such a bad experience. And to this day, I must say, when I, when I feel the wind, I, I still remember that experience, so vivid was it. And I kind of bow inwardly to Ruth for teaching me this very useful lesson about not having aversion to wind. When we resist the unpleasant, we add to our difficulty. On top of something just being unpleasant, we add struggle, contraction, fear. You know it, the whole scenario. Now there's the other side. There's the holding on to the pleasant experience. And this is even trickier to uh, work with because so often when we finally do contact some kind of pleasant experience, we often think, well, this is it. This is what I came for. This is what I signed up for. This is what meditation is supposed to be. I had this experience um, in a three-month course which again, was quite a vivid teaching. I had finally found a little bit of peace and a little bit of this pleasant experience I had thought that meditation was about. I was sitting somewhere back there in about the middle, and it was so pleasant that I was doing longer sitting, so it was during a walking period that I was still in the hall, still sitting, and suddenly, and the hall was kind of empty, there weren't too many people in it. Suddenly, I hear this big commotion in the back of the hall. Somebody's coming in the back, of, back door. A new yogi has just arrived, and he's bringing all his meditation paraphernalia into the hall. And he had paraphernalia. I mean, finally, I had to turn around and look, because I heard crash, crash, bang, bang. I thought, what in the world is going on? 
I am sitting here peacefully, calmly meditating. Who is disturbing my meditation? I turned around finally to see. I saw he had milk cartons and planks, and he was actually constructing for himself something I've never before seen in this, a little meditation hut in the back of the hall. <laughs> he was creating his own little cave back there. I thought, never mind, I'm peaceful, I'm calm, I'm having a blissful time. I will just peacefully arise and peacefully walk out, calmly walk to my room. I will meditate in my room. So I did that. I got up to my room. I was living in the annex at that time, and it was cold. It was in the winter, so the room was a bit cold, but I got my shawls around me, and I was sitting there. No sooner had I sat down... I hear on the roof, thump, thump. (laughs) The maintenance people suddenly arrive to repair the roof. I said, I don't believe this. I'm sitting here peacefully. I finally found my meditation. I'm finally having the experience they've been talking about. Here the staff is coming. Don't they know that they are destroying this yogi's meditation experience? So I thought, never mind, I'll get up calmly, peacefully, I'll put on my coat. I did, I went out to the woods, walking mindfully, calmly, out into the woods. I found a spot under a tree, I sat down, I thought, well, the Buddha did it, I can do it. I'll sit here calmly, peacefully under my tree, sitting there suddenly in the distance, rifle shots, helicopters, dogs barking. It's hunting season, and the hunters are out. Well, finally, I got the message. Finally, I got the message not to hold on. It was ludicrous. I couldn't hold on another moment. How much suffering there is in trying to hold on, and how not the point that is. That peace is found not in the content of our experience, but in our relationship to whatever is occurring. Most of us learn the hard way. Certainly that's been my experience. As it says in the Diamond Sutra, The ultimate expression of freedom is a mind which clings to nothing. A mind which clings to nothing. Or as my friend Suryadas says, a Teflon mind. (laughs) Nothing sticks. Another way that we often hold on unwittingly to our suffering is when we really don't see how our reality is forming itself moment by moment. We may notice our mind dwelling on a particular story, a particular tape, a particular theme, and it replays over and over and over again. And sometimes we don't see that what's keeping this going, what's fueling it is often an emotion, an emotion which can be felt in the body. 
There's a new field in medicine called psychoimmunology, and I find it a very fascinating develop, development. I don't know a lot about it, but what little I know is that this field is actually finding physical correlates of the truth put forth by the Buddha. The Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. Our mental states, our thoughts affect the body. We have in our body, I'm told, 700,000 trillion cells. And each of these cells have receptors which are constantly receiving information from every other cell in the body. Every thought, every feeling, every reaction is literally heard on a cellular level. So that when we are undergoing a great deal of mental stress and struggle or fear or trauma or worry or anger, that these reactions cause chemical responses which stress the cells in our bodies and actually keep these cells from doing their ordinary maintenance work of keeping the body in balance. I think it's very interesting because it shows that Western science is now producing actual physical evidence that can be measured uh, that unwholesome mind states are bad for us on a cellular level. And in our attentiveness to moment-to-moment -moment experience, we can observe the interaction of mental events and the reaction in the body. And this can be a very interesting exploration. We may notice if we're thinking about something to happen in the future, over and over we keep thinking about it. We might ask ourselves, what emotion is fueling these thoughts? What am I feeling? And we may identify it. We may say, aha, this feeling is worry. Where do I feel it in my body? What is the actual sensation of worry in my body? And we can be even more precise in our recognition. We can sometimes make subtle distinctions, like perhaps, is it worry dread? Or is it worry anxiety? I mean, worry, excitement. Worry, dread, and worry, excitement. These are two slightly different forms of worry. And when we can very specifically and very precisely identify what the feeling is, it has a kind of amazing effect because it seems to release us from its hold. If we can precisely recognize the feeling, it's not, it is then possible to accept it. We can't accept something if we haven't really clearly seen what it is. It's like putting the feeling under a microscope and instead of it just being fuzzy and indistinct, it's really like fine-tuning until we really recognize it. It's like an aha experience. Oh, that's what's going on. And in that recognition, something releases. This is actually the, what the Buddha did on the night of his awakening. 
he sat down and he was visited by all the torments of mind, the armies of Mara, as they're sometimes called. Fear, anxiety, dread, doubt, jealousy, rage, lust, desire, all of these came to visit him. All of these came to test him, to challenge his practice. And what was he able to do? He was able to face each arising emo emotion. He was able to recognize each and say, I know you. I know you fear. We have met many times before. You can't fool me. I know you desire. I know you jealousy. I know you anger. With complete presence and total wakefulness, he was able to meet each of these afflictions. You know, at the first twinge of anxiety, he didn't say, oh, that's too much. I think I'll go back to being a prince. Or, you know, fear arose. He, said, he didn't say, this is too much. I can't take it anymore. Or he didn't say, you know, I'm not suited for this meditation. Or he didn't say, oh, life is short. Why should I spend it suffering? He didn't say any of these things. He was willing to be there completely present, completely wakeful, completely willing to feel and recognize each of these afflictions. He said, I know you. He was willing to feel them. And in this way, he freed himself. And just as the Buddha did, we can, all of us, clearly recognize all that appears in awareness. We can see its actuality. We can know its actual nature instead of all of our ideas about it, instead of our strategies of avoidance, our agendas for ourselves just recognizing what it is over and over, moment to moment. In doing this very direct and simple task, we are cultivating an inner environment of calmness, of acceptance, of patience, patience of spaciousness, of ease, so that eventually we find that these torments of mind can arise in a mind which is basically peaceful. We, don't, we discover that we don't need to avoid, to resist, or grab hold of any appearance in mind or body, that we can actually be free in relationship to all that arises. We don't need to get rid of the unpleasant or pursue the pleasant in order to be free. We don't need to improve anything. Everything's okay, just as it is. When we can be open and present without clinging, without resistance. The third Zen patriarch put it this way, when the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. 
And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When anger arises and no longer hooks us in, no longer pushes us around, it ceases to exist in the old way. Everything changes when we change our relationship to that which we most fear, despise, loathe, have difficulty with. It behooves us to learn how to relate to all that arises because we can't control what arises. But we can through paying attention in this very simple, direct, moment-to-moment way discover a wise and compassionate way of being with whatever arises. So that increasingly struggle in our practice and in our lives becomes unnecessary. It actually becomes unnecessary. You know the myth of Sisyphus, the one who carried the rock up the mountain over and over again. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it sings to it. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Can we really give up struggle? Who would we be without our struggle? Can you just for a moment open to that possibility? Really a lot of practice is about learning to test this in our experience. Can we really let go of struggle? Can we do it? We have moments We have many moments of letting go of struggle, but we may not even think that they're significant or important. But increasingly we may see that without any interference or manipulation on our part, when we do give up struggle, everything takes care of itself. Everything self-liberates. Everything arises and passes in its own time. We don't need to strategize or make it happen. We can, without struggle, settle back, relax, and truly let the process unfold. John Cage knew about this. If I can find it. He said, it's from a poem called Silence, he said, if you let it, it supports itself, you don't have to. 
Each something is a celebration of the nothing that supports it. When we remove the world from our shoulders, we notice it doesn't drop. Where is the responsibility? Can we give up our struggle, like Sisyphus, let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home? Gendon Rinpoche puts it this way, wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. So make use of it. All is yours already. Don't search any further. Don't go into the jungle looking for the elephant who is already quiet at home. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want. Everything happens by itself. So let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 25, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.